How's everyone doing today? Good, good. Hey, I would like to start off with telling you a story. So when I was 16, I got my first vehicle. It was this gold little truck I bought off my granddad, and I was so thrilled to have this truck. I took it anywhere at any opportunity I could take to get on the road and drive this. So it was one of those where my parents were like, hey, we need to do a grocery run. I was like, don't worry about it. I got it. Let me, let me do it. You're right. And they're like, oh, we need to take out the trash. And I'm like, here I am, send me, right? Like I looked for any excuse to go out there and take this car out on the road. I loved this little truck. Was anyone else as uh, enthusiastic about their first vehicle? Like I found that on the weekends, I would make sure it was always washed and always cared for. I had a checklist of who was allowed to be in the car and what they were allowed to bring with. I was, had this rule like, no food, no drink. You had to make sure that you took a shower today. You know, I, I was super adamant about this. I was so OCD and so enthusiastic. I was like, I have my first car. And then I found with time that enthusiasm waned, like all things, right? Like you can't maintain that, that OCD enthusiasm for long, right? Before you start to adjust to a more comfortable lifestyle and setting. So eventually I, I became a little bit all right with certain people in the car. And then I became all right with food in the car. And then I was like, well, you know what? I'll even lend out the truck to other people. I know, scary, right? Like I remember when I was in college, I lent it to my roommate. And I was like, he needed it for a few days to travel to a different state and come back with stuff. And I was like, here's my keys. I'll just stay here in the dorms for the next few days. I even let my sister drive it, and she got in multiple fender benders in it, and I was perfectly all right. I was like, yeah, that's fine. I, I became less concerned with the dents and the problems, and then eventually, that became all I could see. I could look at this, and no longer was I just filled with all this excitement, thinking this is the best thing in the world. I became to see just the problems with it. So I did what most people do in that situation. I sold it to my little cousin, who abused it. <laughs> Have you ever had the same thing happen to you? And I'm not talking about a vehicle. I'm talking about, was there something in your life that you were once super enthusiastic about? Oh, you loved it. You couldn't help but to talk about it all the time. And you were so careful to, to nurture and to take care of it. And then eventually you lost that passion. And it could be anything. It could be a new toy. It could be a new job. It could be a new car. It could be that new friendship in the beginning stages, and you're excited to develop a friendship with someone. It could have been a dating relationship. It could even be a marriage. And in the beginning, it's exciting. It feels like everything's perfect. Nothing could ever be wrong. And then over time, we grow bored. Things feel dull. We find ourselves in a routine. And then we find ourselves moving from a place where once everything was great and fantastic, and then we start to move into a place where we can only talk in the form of negatives about the thing that we once loved, the thing that we used to go back to all the time. It has a different feeling to it now. And we start to feel envious when we see other people with the latest model of whatever it is, and we start to think, maybe I made the wrong decision. Maybe I need to trade in this thing here for the newer model. Because then that will get the excitement going. But 
It's like the same way when you buy a car. That first one's exciting, but the second one, the enthusiasm's not the same. Nor is the third one or the fourth one, and on and on, and you find you've fallen into this routine. Now, this is a typical transition that we all go through, and in some cases, it's fine you know, to experience this when it comes to a vehicle or something that's not important, but when it comes to something that is, something like a marriage, something like a relationship with our Creator, then there's danger that sets in. And we find ourselves becoming just like Jonah. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at this character in the Bible, Jonah, and his crazy story he has. And, and it starts off kind of crazy. You know, God kind of speaks to him and says, Jonah, you see your enemies over there? I want you to go to them and preach to them a message of repentance and grace and love. And Jonah runs in the opposite direction. And so this storm comes up and God tries to turn him around and Jonah tries to outsmart God. He tries to get out of it. He, he even tries to kill himself to get out of what God wants him to do. But God had a different plan in mind, so God swallowed him up. And so last week we looked at Jonah and the belly of the whale and the belly of the fish, right? And to see his encounter with God. But then we ended it last week with talking about how he was rescued from that. And we find now Jonah in chapter 3 where we're going to be picking up this morning, and we're looking at a guy who has lost his passion, and we should be approaching it with asking ourselves, how does someone recover what they lost? It's with that we turn to Jonah chapter 3. So if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along, please turn to Jonah chapter 3 with me as we read now where God approaches Jonah again. And this is what he says to Jonah. It's in verse 2. He says, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, or if you've ever heard the story of Jonah, or if you were just listening a few minutes ago when I told you the story of Jonah, this is how the whole story began, right? Where God went to Jonah and says, hey, Jonah, I've got a mission for you. I want you to go to those Ninevites and preach to them the message I'm going to give you. And it's going to be a message of grace and love and repentance because I want to save them, right? And so here's God giving Jonah a second chance. And now we worship a God of second chances and third chances and who's abundant with his grace and mercy, right? But there's also this side of God where he forgives, but that doesn't mean he immediately gives you the same task. It's this aspect of God's holiness. Because oftentimes when God, if you look in the Old Testament, and his holiness is shamed, it is humiliated. When God's people say, you know what, I hear what you're saying, God, but I want nothing to do with this. I'm going my own way, and they shame God. That doesn't always go well for them. Like, God might forgive them, but that doesn't mean he reinstates them right back in the same task. Look at Moses, for example, or Saul, or any of the kings and prophets, and you see that God is a forgiving God, but when his grace, when his holiness, when his glory is shamed by his people, he forgives that doesn't always mean he gives that second chance in the same way. But here he is. So we have to ask ourselves, why is God giving Jonah a second chance? Like, who would ever give Jonah a second chance? And so we have to understand that the theme of the book of Jonah is wrestling with God's sovereignty and control, which is played out here. So we've seen God in control of the storm, right? And we've seen God in control of the big fish. But now the question is, is God in control and his will in place? And does he get what he desires 
when it comes to stubborn, resisting people like Jonah? Well, in this case, it does. So he gives this message to Jonah. And this time, Jonah actually listens. I think he wised up a little bit. He's like, I don't want to go through what I just went through again. All right, we'll we'll do this. So he goes, and he goes into town, into Nineveh, to preach this message. Now, put your imagination caps on, okay? And I want you to picture with me that you're a Ninevite, right? You're part of the Assyrian kingdom. You live in this grasslands. It's a beautiful place. Your kingdom is on the rise. Everyone's got their eyes on you because you're gaining all these accomplishments. You're rising power as a nation. You're about to be the next world superpower. Everyone knows it. And you're proud. You're part of a proud society to be like, yeah, I'm part of the Assyrian kingdom. And I'm not just part of any part of the Assyrian kingdom. I'm part of Nineveh, the capital. We are Ninevites. Like, you're really excited, right? But then you've hit this transitional moment for your kingdom. The leader who's been helping you to rise has just died. And so now you're in this pivotal moment. There's new leadership in town. There's a lot of questioning of, is this this new king? Is this a guy that we can trust? And And at the same time, you're seeing that the enemies think differently. So they're within 100 miles camped inside of your city walls waiting to come in and devour. So you're in this tension. And you're not in the room making the big decisions, right? That's for politicians and generals to make those big decisions. No, you're just a humble citizen. You want to work a job, make a living, take care of your family, and live a quiet life. That's all you want, right? You're a Ninevite. And then one day, you see something you never thought you would see. You see Jonah walking through town, coming your way. And now, keep in mind, Israel, which is the country that Jonah's part of, was your enemy, right? Like, you did not get along with Israelites. But you also recognize that this man, Jonah, he has a reputation for being a prophet of God. And the prophets of God never came with a good message, right? They usually came with a doom and gloom message or saying like, hey, you guys need to change your ways because God's going to do something if you don't, right? So you see this prophet of God who has suddenly come into your town. He's alone. And he's in enemy territory. And I like to imagine as well that he's probably a little bit scary to look at. I mean, think about this, okay? If this message of God saying, Jonah, go to Nineveh, came right after Jonah was, you know, vomited back up by the fish, he's probably not looking too good, right? Like, he's probably in crazy hairstyle. He's probably got some bald spots on him, probably some sores and skin pigmentation. He's probably a little blind, you know, from three days of darkness, stumbling around and all, you know. People are trying to probably help him, guide him by the hand, and he's yelling at them, telling them no, and things like that. And he's probably walking barefoot, so the sand is scorching his feet. He's got the wind beating on his back, and he just has a scowl on his face. He's just stumbling through town. He's a Scary person to look at, right? And he comes into town. He only goes about a day's travel into town. And he stops and he shouts out this message. It's in verse 4. This is his whole sermon, okay? He says, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, that phrase 40 days can also be translated in the Hebrew language as three days, which I like to imagine put a whole lot of frustration when you're talking to like contractors and other people and they're like, yeah, this is going to be 40 days. And in your mind, you're hearing the word three days because the words are the same, right? So, but however this is translated, either three days or 40 days, the message is clear. He's saying your doom has arrived. 
not really the message of grace and repentance and love that God told him to send, right? This is like Jonah. He's like, okay, God, you want me to obey to you? I'll obey, but I'm going to do it in my way. Think of it like this. You tell your little kid to go pick up their toys. And what they do instead is they pick their toys off the floor, but instead of putting it in the toy chest, they hide it in your bed so you can find it later tonight, right? We would still call that disobedience, right? That's disobeying by obeying. That's what Jonah's doing in this moment. He's like, God, I'll obey you, but I'm going to leave things out. Like, he doesn't mention God's love, God's care, God's faithfulness. He doesn't even mention God in his sermon. And in the Hebrew language, it's five words. He just goes around shouting five words, your doom has arrived. And I like to imagine up in heaven, God is probably just sitting there rubbing his head in frustration, thinking, great, okay, not what I asked for, Jonah. (sighs) And yet, you see in the story, God still works in spite of Jonah's disobedience and stubbornness. Because the very next verse, verse 5, tells us this. It says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. And here's how they showed their belief in God. It says, They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, fasting and putting on sackcloth seems like a a weird tradition. That's not something we do, right? Like no one's got some sackcloth hanging up in their closet waiting to one day put on, you know, as a fashion statement. That's not a cultural thing for us. But for them, this was an outward showing of humility. This was an outward showing of someone who had experienced an encounter with God and they saw who they were in comparison and they were humbled and they were brought to a moment of repentance. And here they are, the average Joe, crying out, God, we don't want this disaster. We have sinned. We want to be right with you again. And this message doesn't just end with the the average citizen. This rises up even to the ears of the king. The very next verse, verse 6, tells us this. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, this new king, right? And this new king arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, this is a king who has just taken position. This would be a time to show power and force, to show confidence in your leadership, right? And what has he done? He's humbled himself. He's lying in ashes. He's lying in sackcloth. He's humble, and he's saying, I need God. And he writes this decree. It goes on, he says, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, and this is what it says, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So we're seeing from the lowest person, the lowest peasant in the kingdom, up all the way to the king, everyone responds when they hear this message of, man, we've got to get right with God. And so they showed their belief in God with their repentance. And they're humble. And they're even saying, even our animals have to repent. Now, that seems kind of weird to us, right? Like, my dog, Bandit, if he does something bad, if he rips up something in the house, I'll yell at him. I'll, I'll call him a bad dog and things like that. 
but I don't ask for him to repent because animals can't repent. Okay, they can't come to you and be like, I'm so sorry, I did not mean to do that. I promise you I will never do that again. That's not how animals act, right? And if you're having those conversations with your animal, we need to have another conversation after this, okay? But this is satire, which means the writer of this is using a little bit of comedy and a little bit of exaggeration to tell a message. And that message is to get us to see a vast difference between how the Ninevites reacted to God and how Jonah's been reacting to God. Now, we've seen how Jonah reacts to God, and it's not pretty, right? It's not a model that we want to uh, exemplify and follow in his footsteps on how he reacts to God, right? But here's how the Ninevites react to God. When they're faced with God, they respond with humility. They recognize their need for God. They recognize, you know what? I need God in my life. And here's how they're responding with this repentance. Jesus tells a story very similar to this in Luke chapter 18. He tells a story about two guys who went to the temple to pray. The first man was a Pharisee. This is someone who was highly respected, someone who was sought after for wisdom and advice. This was like the rock star of the days. Little kids would grow up seeing these Pharisees and be like, I want to grow up to be just like him, right? And the Pharisees, they would even dress in a certain way so that around town, everyone would see them and notice them. They lived to be respected. They live to have the spotlight on them in a certain way. And so that's the first man who goes in this temple to pray. The second man was a tax collector. It was a man who was a traitor to his own people. And what I mean by that is that the Roman Empire that ruled hired Israelites to be the tax collectors for themselves. Now, think about this. No one really likes to get those messages from the IRS today, right? So think about in that day and age when you're living under tyranny and your brother comes knocking on your door with armed guards and says, you need to pay up your taxes. Otherwise, we're going to go through your house and we're going to get the money in a different way. That's who this second man is. This is a man who's hated. This is a man who everyone would, no one's going to invite him for a dinner party. No one wants to be around him. People would spit on him. This was a hated man. And both of them come to the temple to pray. Both of them come to spend time with God. And the first man, the Pharisee, he looks up in the middle of his prayer and he sees across the room the second man. And he stops and prays this prayer to God. He says, God, thank you that I'm not like that man over there. Thank you that I've got all the blessings that you've given me, God. Thank you that I'm in a position where I can make a difference in other people's lives. Father, thank you for all the wonderful blessings, everything you've given me, that you've kept me from being like that man over there. But the second man, Jesus tells us had a different response, a different prayer to God. See, the second man couldn't look up. Jesus says the man had to keep his face on the ground. He was crying and he was beating his chest saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that it was the second man's prayer that God took interest in, that God listened to and answered and ignored the first man, the man of God. And the same thing is happening here where we have this split between how the Ninevites reacted to God and how Jonah reacts to God. And it's not a pretty picture. The man of Jonah is a spirit that is actually very common in this world in a lot of ways. I've seen it many times. And it's in a lot of churches as well because this is someone who has found the love of Jesus to be dull. 
to be one of obligation, to be one of rules and, and things to do. That's what they viewed church as. Someone who has a Jonah spirit is someone who they, they count themselves as Christians. If you go and talk to them, you're like, hey, are you a Christian? The reason why they say they're a Christian, they're like, oh yeah, I said a little prayer when I was a kid. I go to church. I had that talk with my pastor. You know, I'm a pastor, I'm a deacon, I'm an elder. But they would never talk about Jesus Christ, who's the only one who saves them. Someone who is a Jonah spirit is someone who sees themselves with all this self-righteousness. They think, I've earned this status. And they look down their nose with judgment at others. And they live their lives thinking, I deserve to be heard. I deserve to be respected for all the times I've put into different things. Someone with the Jonah spirit who has lost their way is someone who they, they're focused all on the good deeds they do. Rather than stopping daily and thinking, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the message that's being pulled out here in Jonah chapter 3. And it's an uncomfortable message. Because the whole theme is not about the Ninevites for revival and excitement. This is a big occasion that's going on for them. Like, think back to your own time that you were converted and you came to faith. The excitement that's going on is magnified by thousands right now for the Ninevites. But the point of this, this book is not the, the book of Nineveh. This is the book of Jonah, of Jonah's story. Because the whole point of Jonah and his story, in many ways, is to point a nasty finger at God's people. To get them to see the brokenness of their own hearts. And the purpose of Jonah chapter 3 really is about arising up to the surface this question. When we are faced with a mirror before us, where God's kind of saying, which one are you? And it's this single question that's, that could be kind of crippling. And the answer, the question, I mean, is this, have you lost your sense of grace? Have you lost your sense of grace? Jonah chapter 3 is not telling you how to have a better life. There's no lessons to be pulled out here to apply to your life. It is just one scary question of who are you in this story? Are you the Ninevites with this burning passion and excitement for God because you have found yourself in this moment of repentance? You have looked at yourself. The mirror has been put in front of you and you see yourself and you're like, God, I need help. I need you in my life. Or have you started to fall into the trap that Jonah is stuck in? We've seen how he is. It's not pretty. And yet... We so often go down this route. Like I said, we see it all the time. And I don't think anyone wakes up one day and thinks, I want to be like Jonah. But we find ourselves becoming like him day after day when we make tiny little compromises to our beliefs, to our identity, to our faith. We make these compromises because we want to take the easy route the comfortable route, the self-gratifying route. And I think before long, our eyes are opened up and we have to see ourselves and think, how did I become this person? 
And I'll be honest, I have had this experience many times. I have been both Nineveh and Jonah, and I feel like I've been Jonah more than I've been Nineveh, and it's not comfortable when the mirror is finally put up. In Jonah chapter 3, while it's a fun chapter, and it's like exciting, and you think, man, I want to see something like that. When we look at Jonah, that's the whole point is to put a mirror in front of our faces. And like I said, this is not a fun topic. It feels uncomfortable. It's the last thing we want to talk about. But it's important because if we become like Jonah in the areas that matter, we'll find those areas suffering. So maybe it's in a marriage for us. Maybe a marriage started off strong, but over time it has lost its passion and its heart and its meaning. And now it's just become boring, mundane, Maybe we've gone so far that we look at our spouse and we just get irritated when they're in the same room as us. We might even go so far as to say, I hate my spouse. And if we're not careful, if we're not guarding our hearts, this is where we can become. Maybe it's the same thing with a job. You start out with a job and you're all passionate about it. You're like, I see this divine purpose behind it. I see how God has put me here. I am so excited for this. And then over time, Things change, right? It gets aggravating. It's the last thing you want to do when you wake up in the morning now. You don't want to be there anymore. You've lost your sense of grace and what you've got. You start looking for ways out. If we're not careful, we can become like this. An example of like this is the King David in the Old Testament. David is known as a man after God's own heart. You read his story, and it's one of this guy who has this tremendous amount of heart and love for God. You read his story, you read the Psalms that he wrote and things like that, and you're like, man, this guy loved God. And then a day came where he grew comfortable. He grew used to choosing the easy route. And he loses his sense of grace, and you can tell because he has an affair and then commits murder and tries to cover it up. And a moment comes in David's life where he can't hide from what he's done anymore. And he can't hide from the man he's been anymore. The mirror has been put in front of him. And he has to face what he's done and who he's become. And he tells us this experience in in Psalm chapter 51 where he writes this big, open repentance to God, saying, God, I'm sorry for who I've been. I don't want to be this man anymore. But he ends it with this remarkable verse at the end. It's in Psalm chapter 51, where right at the end he says, verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Maybe for us that's where we need to be today. Look, I'm not trying to make you feel comfortable. I'm merely wanting to present the mirror of Jonah chapter 3 and allow you to ask the scary question of, have you lost your sense of grace? And if you feel like the answer is yes, maybe your response needs to be the same thing as it was for King David, what it should have been for Jonah. That heart to be able to look at yourself and repent and say, this is not who I want to be. This is not who God wants me to be. 
And you confess that sin and you come back to God and say, you know what, God, I need you today. We're going to start over today. This is not just an issue with individuals. Whole communities can become like this, of falling into this Jonah trap. An example is the Ephesian church. Now, the Ephesian church, when it started out, it was the church of its day. It was the church that everyone was talking about. Everyone wanted to be part of the Ephesian church, right? Most of the New Testament was written to this little church. Paul wrote a letter. John wrote a letter. Everyone was talking about, man, this church is the bomb. This is the church where you want to be. It was so passionate in its early years for Jesus. And then over time, it grew stagnant. Worship became a routine. It became the thing you just do. And so decades go by, and then you see Jesus writes them a letter. And it's in the book of Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus is like, let's, let's talk about this church. And here's what he says. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I know all the things you do. How great is that? Like that Jesus saying, I know all the things you do, right? That, that's kind of comforting and a little scary at the same time. And he says, I know all you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. That's kind of comforting. He's like, I, I see how you've been putting in time. I see all the things you do for the community around you. I see your heart and you have this passion, right, to do good things. And you work hard. You're a hardworking church, right? He says that. And then he goes on. He says, I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say that they are apostles but are not. And you discovered that they are liars, he says, you've even gone so far as look at people and you're like, yeah, that's not someone worth listening to. That's not someone worth trusting. We need to get them away from us. Like, that's how this church is. They have that reputation. He goes on and he says, you have patiently suffered for me without quitting. He says, you are the kind of people who people mock you for being Christians. People make fun of you. You've suffered because of your idea with me. That, that would seem all great, right? Well, this next sentence is kind of hard. He says, but I have this complaint against you. This is Jesus talking. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. They lost their sense of grace. They lost their, their first love, their love for Jesus. And this is a slippery slope that we can all fall into if we're not careful to guard our hearts, if we're not careful to bring this question of whether we've lost our sense of grace, if we're not careful to always be bringing this question up before us, we can find ourselves falling into traps of looking like Jonah. And look, I'm not going to give you some, uh, some secret or some way to, to figure out how you're going to get out of this because that's between you and God. My role this morning is just to put the mirror up and ask you, what do you see when you ask this question? And when you ask that question to God, what he tells you you need to do with it, that's on you. But I imagine in some ways it might have to do with a reminder of where you came from. So what made that marriage so special in the beginning? Go back to doing those things. What made that job that friendship, that whatever so special, that was so important, go back to doing those things long ago. 
Maybe for those who are married, maybe that means you need to start taking your spouses on dates. <laughs> maybe that can mean any other things. But that's something that you've got to be brave enough to bring that question before God. But when it comes to us and Jesus, this is a crucial question that we need to be brave enough to answer. We're brave enough to ask. Because I don't want us to end up like the Ephesian church. I'd rather him say, I see what you do. I see all the wonderful things you do. I see how you suffer for my name. I see how you pour heart and soul in this. And you love me. I love for Jesus to say that. He says, you guys really love God and love people. Let's be that church. And I'm not saying we're not. But I'm just putting up a mirror. That's a question you have to ask for yourself. Because we don't want to be like Jonah. Why don't you pray with me? Father, I will be the first to admit how easy it is to become like Jonah. I'm in ministry, Father. I try to serve you all the time, and yet I still find I can so easily become like this when it becomes routine. Just another checklist thing. But God, you are so much more than just a checklist, some routine that we throw in. You are everything. So, Father, I would ask that you would open up our hearts to be in awe of you again. Don't let us grow cold and stagnant like Jonah. Let us be bold. Let us be on fire for you, Father. Let us be people who will walk out of here loving God and loving people as the difference makers and the influencers that this community needs, Father. As we come to you week after week, time after time, day after day, beating our chest, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, a sinner. And then we leave with the heart to be salt and light, to love you as we go out to love others. Father, help us to be more like that. It is in your name I pray. Amen.